We're going to continue to the book of Matthew this morning. And today we're going to talk about being for or against the king. For or against the king. But before we do, let's pray together again. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to to be here and to worship you. I thank you for these brothers and sisters in the Lord and the privilege that we have to look up to you together this morning. And so, Lord, we've been walking through your gospel, Lord, the gospel of Matthew, and um, we're seeing, Lord Jesus, all the mighty things that you did during your earthly ministry. And Lord, we want to behold you for who you truly are. We want to believe in you, Lord Jesus, for who you truly are. We want to respond to you, Lord Jesus, in the way that is fitting God to who you truly are. And so grant us uh, divine sight this morning. King Jesus. Bless us that we may be a blessing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And as I said, we're going to be talking about uh, being for or against the king. As I was thinking about this, um, another biblical uh, story kind of came to mind that I believe illustrates this point that Jesus is talking about today. It's the story in the book of Joshua. Maybe you remember this story. Um, uh, the, the Israelites are about to enter to the promised land, right? And they're about to, uh, they're coming up on the first city that they will take, and that is the city of Jericho. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, one of the most famous kids' stories, Sunday school stories, okay? They walk around the city seven times, uh, once a day for seven days, on the seventh day, seven times, and the, just the walls just fall down, okay? Well, if you remember, before all that happens, they're, uh, they're crossing the Jordan, and, and for some reason, I, I just realized this for the first time, uh, I, I just, it just never stood out to me till now, but if you read right before that happens, they actually take the Passover. So it's, it's the first Passover they actually take in the promised land right before they enter the land, and that's interesting because... The, the, it was the Passover, right, that led them out of Egypt, right? Out of the Passover was God's act of salvation, essentially, of the Jewish nation, right? Where God passed over them in judgment, where he struck the firstborn of the Egyptians that led them out of slavery in Egypt. And then they actually celebrate the Passover as they're entering into the promised land for the very first time. And before they go to Jericho, Joshua is out. And uh, he comes across uh, this man, and this is, this is what happens. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, that's always interesting. That's always been interesting to me. Joshua is thinking, are you for us or for our enemies? And this is God speaking. God says, no. In other words, you're viewing things from a certain perspective. You're viewing things as primarily a battle between this group and this group. But the Lord isn't on your human side. The Lord is on his side. 
The Lord has a plan, and he has a purposes that go beyond human thoughts and intentions and categories. The Lord is on the Lord's side. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at today when he talks about how we're either for him or against him. We're either for our own plans, our own purposes, our own will, our own categories, our own way of looking at things, or we're for God's. And you can't be for both. I think that's what Jesus is talking about this morning. That's what we're going to talk about as we talk about for or against the king from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. And so if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through verse 37. It says that a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather, gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of, the evil treasure, out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Word of God. You may be seated. I want to explore this passage under three headings this morning. Number one, divided house. Number two, unforgivable sin. And number three, idle words. Divided house, unforgivable sin, and idle words. First, we want to talk about divided house. So a major theme uh, that we've been seeing in this section of Matthew so far, right, is that there's growing opposition to Jesus and his ministry. And this, you know, gives us a, a, a bit of anticipation of what's going to happen at the end of Jesus' ministry. And that is the opposition is going to reach a climax where uh, the, uh, fair, the, the religious leaders seize an opportunity through Judas to have Jesus crucified. And Jesus, as that day draws near, as we'll see, he will begin to share with his disciples about how his death must come. And they, they, don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. Uh, but we'll talk about that later. But here in this passage, we have another sign 
uh, of Jesus, a demon-oppressed man uh, who was both blind and mute, and Jesus heals him. And so, again, as we've seen so often, there's this amazing, astounding, undeniable sign that everybody present has seen. Uh, and, and, and we just have to remember just how remarkable that is, okay? Um, you know what's fascinating is that just from a strictly historical standpoint, we have, we, there, there, there are some ancient uh, witnesses, non, non-Christian testimony that refer to Jesus, uh, um, uh, that, that refer to testimony about a man uh, a man uh, that is, you know, who we know is Jesus, who they referred to him as like a sorcerer or a magician. In other words, these ancient documents, even as reported by non-believers, are what? They're acknowledging that this man did undeniable and unexplainable things, right? And so even his, uh, even his enemies could not get around the fact that he did things that were naturally unexplainable. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. It's powerful. And note here, but, and note what's even sh- more shocking is that here we have the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are actually themselves eyewitnesses of the miraculous works of Jesus Christ, and yet they still don't believe in him. That tells you how depraved the human heart is, apart from the grace of God. Matthew relates this story of this healing of this, of this demon-oppressed man, but we learn very quickly reading the story that Matthew's purpose and sharing this story really isn't to tell us about the healing as much as it is to tell us about the, the opposition that Jesus is beginning to face uh, with the Pharisees, okay? As, and and when, when, this, when this exorcism happened, everyone there was astounded. And they said, can this be the son of David? So you recall one of the very important passages in the, in the Bible is 2 Samuel 7, in which God tells David, makes him a covenant, a promise, that one of his offspring will sit on the throne of David forever. Okay? And so, and so there's, this ex, there's this Jewish expectation, of course, that there will be, that, that there will arise a descendant of David, the heir of David, who will sit on the throne of David and rule over God's people and restore Israel back to the to the nation that it was meant to be. And, and so when he did this in, incredible miracle, it just stirs up these people all the more. Can this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? Is this who uh, we think he is? But as the crowds became more enamored with Jesus, the Pharisees became even more urgent in trying to discredit him and destroy him. In this case... Their hearts have become so hard out of spite and envy that they accuse Jesus, a man who has done nothing but good, a man who has healed, has helped innumerable people, has healed all kinds of diseases, has cast out so many demons, has even raised people back from the dead, and yet, in spite of all these things, their heart is so hard that they are accusing his miraculous power to be, uh, uh, be, to be affected by the power of Satan. By the prince of demons, they said, this man casts out demons. But Jesus, it says, knowing their thoughts. Now, I just want to stop there for a second. It's kind of a side comment. Think about the fact that Jesus knew their thoughts. Think about the fact that Jesus knows your thoughts. Nothing is hidden from God. He sees the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so that means that one day... Even the good, the, 
good things we have done out of self-centered or manipulative motives will cry out against us on the last day. Because God sees not just the external like we do, but God sees the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Pharisees looked good on the outside, but Jesus knew their thoughts. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, how he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus here exposes their hardness of heart, and he shows that their claims that he casts out Satan by the power of Satan, he shows that their claims are not just wrong, but it's actually absurd, right? Because if Jesus is acting with the power of Satan to undo Satan's dominion over this demon-oppressed man and others, then Satan is effectively just shooting himself in the foot, right? And are, are we to suppose that Satan is that ignorant? Satan's not that dumb, okay? He's not, he's, not, he's not trying to play some trick. He plays a lot of tricks, but that's not a trick. He's just, Jesus is just whooping Satan's tail at the moment. That's what's happening. It ain't Satan working some kind of trick, okay? Are we, Satan's not that ignorant. Are we to suppose that Satan somehow is building his demonic king kingdom by freeing people from the grip of his own minions? No, Jesus says that's absurd because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, which is a principle for the church today. But Jesus takes it further. He takes it even further than that. And, and so not only is it absurd, but he also takes this opportunity to point out the Pharisees' own hypocrisy in this matter by uh, itinerant Jewish exorcism. So uh, beyond the Bible, there is historical record of itinerant Jewish exorcisms. There were, there were J- Jewish exorcists who, who went around and, and cast out demons. And, and Jesus, in making this reference, is, 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 is clearly referring to something that the Pharisees themselves would recognize, that there were some, there were some who were associated with the Pharisees, um, it calls them son, uh, you, by whom do your sons cast them out? But that just, it might not, it might mean they're physical sons, but it may just mean they're associates or something like that. It's a Hebrew expression. Okay. But they, they were aware of these exorcisms. Okay. And, and perhaps some of these Pharisees has even participated in exorcisms themselves. But are we to suppose that these associates of the Pharisees had more, we, are we to suppose that they had more Uh, credentials to be coming legitimately from God than Jesus Christ did? But if the Pharisees accept those exorcisms, on what grounds do they reject Jesus' exorcisms? Okay? In other words, they're they're just hypocrites. Okay? And and so the, the, the exorcisms of the Pharisees and their associates will bear witness to their hypocrisy on the last day. And then Jesus goes on to give uh, an analogy of the of the significance of what's happening in his ministry. This is what he says. This is an important passage. Verse 28. He says, if it is by the, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so Jesus says, you accuse me of exercising Satan power, Satan's power against himself, which is absurd. But he says, let me tell you what's really happening. If it's not by Satan's power that I'm casting out demons, but by the power of the Spirit of God, then you know that the kingdom of God 
has come upon you. So note what Jesus is implying there. That the powerful working of the Holy Spirit through him in the working of miracles and in the exercising of demons is God's vindication and validation that the kingdom of God has come through Jesus Christ. And, and, and remember, the Jews, they were looking for the kingdom of God. They were expecting the kingdom of God. They were hoping for the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is saying, it's here. It's in me. Can't you see it? The Spirit, the Spirit, and see, we, we take the Spirit for granted because the Spirit through after Pentecost is now, it, it seals every believer, okay? But we have to remember that in the, in, the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, the working of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon people in a powerful way was very rare, okay? Jesus did, I mean, again, we take it for granted, but if you read the whole, the whole Bible, you'll see that what Jesus did is astounding. The only things that even come close to the type of things that Jesus did were the ministries um, of Moses and Elijah and Elisha. They're the only ones who did even, even remotely comparable type of miraculous things, and that only very sporadically. But Jesus, in a matter of just three years of public ministry, John said that if everything that Jesus did were to be written, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. And so what Jesus did in a very short period of time was that he came in human history 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel to vindicate and to validate the fact that through him, God was keeping his promises and bringing the kingdom of God into the world. And that was validated by the manifest and obvious, undeniable working of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And this is what was prophesied about in Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesse was King David's father. Okay, So saying a stump from the root of Jesse. So a stump, right, is a tree that's cut off. David's lineage after the exile, David's, King David's lineage was cut off in a sense that there was no reigning Jewish king uh, on, the, on the throne of Israel, descended from David, okay? But Isaiah prophesied of a day when a shoot, you know how sometimes you cut off a, a stump or, or a branch, and then from that, that cut off stump, the little branch, a little shoot starts growing out of it. He says, Isaiah, in this vision, he proclaims that the, the, the stump of Jesse, the lineage of David has been cut off, but one day a shoot's going to grow out of it. And he's going to bear fruit. And what does it say there in verse 2? It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Jesus says, That's me. I'm the one supremely filled with the Holy Spirit, bringing in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, uh, And, 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 and so what, what is Jesus doing by casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead and all that? Well, he, 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 the way he describes it here is that he, he, he's plundering Satan's kingdom, right? How can you plunder a kingdom uh, to, to plunder a, a man's house? He says you must first, a strong man's house, you must first bind the strong man. Well, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I've come and I've bound Satan and I've kicked his door in and I'm taking all my stuff back. That's what Jesus is saying. 
He's been the ruler of this world long enough. Jesus is saying, I'm greater than Satan, and I have come, and I have bound Satan, and now I'm freeing all those who have been taken captive to him. I'm setting the captives free. This is what Jesus Christ has done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan is bound, he is disarmed, and Christ is plundering his kingdom by the power of the Word and the Spirit. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. Wherever the gospel of Christ is proclaimed and wherever it is believed on, people are being set free from the power of sin and Satan and coming into the kingdom of God. But not everyone will receive it, just like the Pharisees didn't receive it. Nevertheless, the Spirit uh, has shown that the kingdom of God has come upon them. So number one, we see a divided house. Number two, we see unforgivable sin. Verse 30, it says, whoever is with me is not, uh, uh, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, Following this intense confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, Jesus adds these words, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, we have to think about that. What does that mean, and what sense uh, are we to make of that? Um, and, you know, if, and, and maybe when you read that, another passage comes to mind that confuses you a little bit, and so it's worth dealing with. Uh, where Jesus seems to say something different. In Mark 9, 38-41, it says that John said to him, that is Jesus, this is teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. And so at first blush, it may seem that Jesus is contradicting himself, but he's not because, obviously, these two passages have totally different contexts, okay? In the passage in Mark, what he's talking about is, this, is a person who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, apparently, this person wasn't strictly following, with Jesus, following Jesus, so he wasn't among the number of, the, of who would be recognized as disciples of Jesus, and yet he recognized that Jesus' name had power. And so he was invoking Jesus' name, and God, for his, in his wisdom and in his purposes, was still performing that miracle for the sake of Jesus' name, even though whoever this person was, wasn't. Uh, we don't know exactly how he felt about Jesus. Apparently he wasn't opposed to Jesus if he was invoking Jesus' name, but he wasn't among the official followers of Jesus. Okay, But God was still validating the power of Jesus by working miracles in his name, even through this person who was not officially following him. And so in this case, what Jesus is speaking to is how the activity of this person validates the, the, and vindicates the power and the person of Jesus such that whoever did this wouldn't be able to quickly go back and say, Jesus, is na- you know, Jesus isn't a big deal if, if you know, just a little while ago a miracle had happened through this person by invoking Jesus' name. The case with the Pharisees, of course, is very different because the Pharisees are not even indifferent to Jesus. They're vehemently opposed to Jesus. 
And what and Jesus, what Jesus is addressing here is not the activity like the person who is casting out demons. He's not addressing the activity. He's addressing the Pharisee's heart. And when it comes to our heart, when it comes to the activity of our heart concerning Christ, we are either for him or against him. When it comes to, when it comes to the, the posture that we take in our hearts toward Jesus Christ, what Jesus is saying at the end of the day, we're either for him or against him. It has to be, right? That's the only way. The fundamental Christian proclamation is that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And so when you, say, when you say Lord, when you say Jesus is Lord, it makes no sense, as some people try to say, it makes no sense to say, well, Jesus is my Lord, a little bit. Jesus is my Lord most of the time. Jesus is my Lord, except when it's inconvenient for me. Let me tell you something. Jesus ain't your Lord. If that's the way you treat him. It doesn't make sense to say no, Lord. It's a contradiction in terms. The demands of lordship, the demands of kingship are absolute. You see, that's why, that's why Christianity is so hard for people. At least the people who actually get it, the people who actually grasp it. Right? Because we in America, we love our freedoms, and I'm all for freedom. I believe in freedom. But when you follow Jesus Christ, the Bible says you become a slave of Christ. You're free from sin. But guess what? You're not free to do anything you want. You're free to, you're free to do what you couldn't do before. And that is deny yourself and follow Jesus. You're free to follow Jesus, to serve him, to glorify him, to lay down your rights and yourself in service to him. And so, and so Jesus says, when it comes to our heart, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You can't be indifferent towards Jesus. There is no middle ground towards Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation, talking about the lukewarm church? He didn't say, you're lukewarm, and so let's still be friends. He said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus' lordship is total, and so we surrender all to him. And this prepares us for the next comments that Jesus made about this rather thorny issue about, uh, concerning the unforgivable sin. Okay? And the interpretation is difficult, and there's been many who have tried. But I'll just give you my take on it. I think it means this. When he says, speaking a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I mean, you, you, you have to read the passage in its context, right? He's in controversy with the Pharisees who are seeing his miraculous power with their own two eyes, and yet their hearts are still so hard that they're rejecting it, right? And so <clears throat> it seems to me when he talks about speaking a word against the Son of Man, I think it implies that there will be those who reject the bare facts about Jesus and the ministry and his gospel, okay? Which, by the way, is all of us, right? Before all of us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, there was at some point in your life when you weren't a believer, when you weren't saved. And before that time came, you may have heard about Jesus, you may have known about Jesus, and uh, you may have known uh, a little bit about him, but you never truly believed in him. You never truly surrendered to him. You never truly bowed the knee to his lordship and embraced him by faith. 
Okay, you were rejecting, you were rejecting the fullness of who he is because to know Jesus as he really is, uh, I mean, it, who he really is demands faith, demands obedience. And when you see him for who he really is, that's, that's the only appropriate response. Okay, so bless God then that we, bless God that the, we who reject Jesus for a period of time in our life can still be forgiven. <laughs> Bless God that those who have rejected Jesus and who he really is, uh, there are people who have done that their entire lives. And then by God's grace and by God's mercy, they come to saving knowledge of Christ before they pass. That's a gift from God. It's a gift from God that no matter what you've done and no matter for how long you have done, and if you will repent of your sins and believe in Christ, God will forgive you. That's the radical and, and controversial grace of God. All the people, as this is controversial. People don't like the grace of God. All the murderers and, and, and killers on death row, if they repented of their sins and believed in Jesus right now, God would forgive them of their sins. That's how radical God's grace is. You see, we like to be forgiven of our sins, but those people whose sins are so bad, I can't believe God will forgive them. Well, you, well, mm. forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But see, that's how great, great and how radical the grace of God is. But he goes on to say, but whoever speaks the word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And that seems to say this in the context of the passage. That seems to say that, that those who have, who, have, who, who have grasped to a certain degree the power of Jesus, who like the Pharisees have seen him, and may, or, or in our case maybe have read about him in the scriptures, have contemplated and weighed carefully the claims that have been made about him. And have, and have truly sat down in their hearts and weighed Jesus in the scales, as it were, in their own heart and mind. Based on the testimony of, his, of the power of the Spirit that was at work in him. And they have sat down in their hearts and weighed, and weighed Christ and still have found him lacking. That person is in a terribly, terribly dangerous and precarious position. And of course, Jesus in the context here is speaking of the Pharisees. They had seen his and heard his teaching, his power up close and personally. They had weighed him carefully in, the, in, in their hearts and they despised him anyways. In fact, so much did they despise Jesus that they were attributing his works to the work of Satan. That's a very dangerous place to be. And you know, and there are some. There are some today. I mean, it's happening today. Those who call good evil and call evil good and who attribute the work of the Spirit of God in his people and the good that they do to evil purposes and schemes. That's a dangerous place to be. It's towing the line of the unforgivable sin. Now, of course, this has bothered some Christians, and I just want to say, if you tremble in fear that you have committed the unforgivable sin, then almost certainly you haven't. <laughs> because 
the unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about wouldn't be scared that it committed it. The unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about is hardness of hearts. So hard that you attribute the power of God to Satan. And so, don't be afraid, don't be concerned. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And finally, concerning whether someone has gone that far or not, the truth is, the truth is we, we can't know and we shouldn't presume to know. And so when it comes to others, we should, we should never give up hope. And I say that because I bet there were some believers who thought that the apostle Paul saw, there's no way he could be saved till he was saved. And God smote him uh, off that donkey, and he was never the same. So we can't discern the heart, but God can. And so divided house, unforgivable sin, and finally, idle words. Jesus goes on to say, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I could have preached a sermon just on this passage. But this gets to the heart of the Christian faith. And Jesus has explained this before in the Sermon on the Mount, so we can be a little bit briefer here. But Christianity is unique of the religions because it's a heart religion, right? Jesus deals with the heart. He deals with the root. The, the, our behavior, our activities, our actions are fruit. But the fruit is just secondary to the root. Jesus, it, Jesus comes to deal with the root. And when the root is changed, the fruit will change. So the fruit is important, but it's not the most important. It's, not, it's no good to change your behavior if, you, if your God doesn't change your heart. Christianity is a religion of the heart. So Jesus says, make the tree good and the fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. In other words, don't worry about changing your behaviors as much as you need to worry about making sure your heart aligns with God's. If you deal with the heart, if you deal with your heart, the fruit will take care of itself. And we, do, and, we, and we fall into this trap all the time of getting it wrong. Sometimes we say things like, you know, well, I have this bad habit and I just can't kick it. Well, first of all, you're focusing on the behavior. You're focusing on the fruit, not the root. Why are you given to that habit? What lie are you believing that's making you wake up every morning thinking it's not a big deal if I indulge this bad habit? You're dealing with, you're, talk, you're thinking about the fruit. You're not dealing with the root. The conditions in your heart that are producing that fruit. The worst is with our children, right? We can be so focused on getting our children to act right rather than teaching them to love God with integrity of heart and faith in Christ. I mean, I feel it, right? You just don't want your children to embarrass you. Okay, that's a temptation. But let me tell you something. It's no good if you, have a well, if you, if you create a well-behaved 
eight-year-old Pharisee. It's no good if they don't love God and treasure him from the heart. And so, <clears throat> and so Christianity is a heart religion. And, and this final thing that Jesus talks about here is that he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? In the context of the passage, he's talking about what the Pharisees were saying. Right? They were saying that his power was really the power of Satan. <clears throat> and they wouldn't realize, they, they didn't, and they might have even said that in an off-the-cuff kind of way, like whispering it to themselves, thinking about it in their heart. But guess what? Jesus said, you'll give an account for every careless word you speak. Why? <clears throat> because one of the most purest and truest indicators of the human heart is your speech. Is your speech. Now, of course, we can all guard our words sometimes, but we can't guard it all the time. And somebody will say, well, I didn't mean to say that. I'm not normally like that. Well, Jesus says it couldn't come out if it wasn't already in. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we do this. We condemn ourselves. I do this. You ever say things? You ever, you ever said anything sometime? <laughs> And the, the second it leaves your lips, you're thinking, oh, my goodness. And you just realize you hurt somebody. And you'll say, you'll say, I didn't mean that. And then they'll look at you and say, are you sure? And if we're honest, we said it because maybe just a little bit, we did mean it. What is that? It's exposing the heart. It's exposing the heart. And that's not to condemn us. It's to say, when that happens to us, what does it mean? It means, for a believer, it means this. It means, okay, God, I need you to deal with this. Because this came out of me, and I didn't know it was in there, but it is. And I need you to get it out. It exposes the heart. It exposes our need for forgiveness, for a Savior. Your speech is one of the truest indicators of what's in your heart. Which is why Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, <clears throat> I mean, we, we just have to take these words to heart. Every Careless word. You know, I don't know how it's going to play out, but it scares me. Okay, I imagine, I imagine it to be something like this. I imagine we stand before Jesus one by one, and the whole host of heaven is standing behind us. And there's a little screen on display. And the screen is the video of your life. But guess what? It doesn't just record the words you say. It records the thoughts of your heart, and it gets played back. In front of everybody. And, and Jesus is there, and, he, and after every little thing, he hits the pause button and says, what do you have to say about that? Let me tell you something. Nobody will make it through that day unless we're forgiven. And if we're forgiven, what happened to every careless word you said? Jesus took every careless word you said and paid the penalty for it on the cross. That's what happened. If you believe in Jesus Christ. 
our only hope on the day of judgment, to be spared from every careless word, how much more all the other sins we committed. The only hope is by forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And this is the power of Jesus. Jesus comes and he does what we can't do. He gives us a new heart. And if you're a follower of Christ today, you can testify. I might not be what I one day will be, but I can testify I'm not who I used to be because God has changed me. And if you don't know Christ this morning, I want to say you don't have to be who you've always been because God can change you like he changed me. Let's pray.